Hi, I'm Charles Blow, and I'm on the tightrope. We are witnessing America as a failed social experiment. How do we tell this story in a way that builds the kind of emotional momentum that colorblind ideology builds? So many young brothers and sisters of the younger generation find themselves so far removed from the best of their past. What are we going to make out of the nothing we've been given? How do you envision possibility? Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining us on The Tightrope, where, as usual, we engage in a love and justice-infused conversation on ever-increasing tough issues. I'm Trisha Rose, and I'm here with my dear co-host and amazing intellectual and friend, Cornell West. But before I go to Cornell, I want to just catch you all up on our new relationship with Patreon and to remind those of you who like The Tightrope that there's additional materials behind Patreon's universe that we really would love you to join us over there and be a part of our community. Our office hours uh, are now a part of the Patreon site, as well as tidbits, outtakes, and occasionally sometimes Cornell singing a little bit of some soul music. So you really don't want to miss some of that. So if you want to be part of the tightrope community on Patreon, please join us at patreon.com backslash the tightrope pod and continue to stay fortified as best you can. Cornell, all right, let's jump right in. Before we introduce oh, our fantastic guest, it's good to see you. How are you? got a special brother today, but we're going to reflect a little bit. First of all, I want to say it is a blessing to be in conversation with you, my dear sister, once again, once again. I don't take nothing for granted. Each day is a gift and each breath is a breakthrough. Well, especially right now, each breath is a breakthrough. <laughs> I used to think that was a kind of a metaphor. But no, no, no cliche. Like, it's no actually cliche. totally like the, no, it's actually no, a deal. No, the sister said that at the beauty parlor, the brothers at the barbershop, that's called wisdom. That ain't no mm. shibboleth. That ain't no mm. cliche. They know what they're talking about. They've been through some hell and high water. Yes, that and is they true. They have a sense of gratitude. Right, appreciation Period. for all the things, small and large. And you let that gratitude soak your soul. It's hard to, for your ego to find some space up in there. Because that mm. gratitude is flowing to something bigger than you. You oh. owe something to a cause bigger than you. The folk sacrifice for you. That's the, the starting point. You see, that's part mm. of that black genius and black creativity that we talk about on this show. Now, black folk ain't, mm. no, ain't got a monopoly on it. But no. we certainly got much more than a lot of our vanilla brothers and sisters in, in mm. the American empire. Let's just be wow. honest about it. This is, I, I love this, this starting point you have us in Cornell, but especially this idea that gratitude pushes out the ego. Can you say a little bit more about that? I, I really love that. Well, I mean, the thing is, each soul is a, is a vacuum. You got to fill it with something. You're going to mm -hmm. be love of self, love of pleasure, or love of wisdom, or love of justice, or love of neighbor. But it's got to be filled with something. But when you start with gratitude and you got the right attitude that allows you to aspire <laughs> to the right altitude, Hey, that ain't no cliche. That ain't no it cliche. rhymes, but it's not a cliche. <laughs> no, no, that's Shiloh Baptist Church. That's Shiloh Baptist Church. We're we going to be talking to a brother who's one of the great products of a Shiloh Baptist Church. I'm product of another Shiloh Baptist Church. Mm. But, well, let's uh, maybe, let's let, 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 let's bring that brother. Let's on bring let's bring our tightrope folks in, yeah. into the yeah. circle. So we Absolutely. are very blessed. I'll give a basic intro and then Cornell, I want you to give your special special Absolutely. info for it. We're very fortunate to have the extraordinary journalist and writer Charles M. Blow, 
who is an op-ed writer for the New York Times, among many other things, and uh, is uh, frequently appears on CNN and tells it like it is and doesn't hold any uh, anything back and is precise and brave in many ways. I'm not sure I would say half the things he says in in public on on a front page of the New York on the op-ed pages of the New York Times. He's uh, the author of the best-selling Fire Shut Up in My Bones a few years ago. And he has a new book out called The Devil You Know, A Black Power Manifesto. And so we're thrilled to talk to them about all kinds of things, including this fantastic new book. Cornell, give Charles M. Blow the Cornell West introduction. This well, is, no, this we is want the world to know that this brother Charles Blow coming out of Gibson, Louisiana and Shallow <laughs> Baptist Church, but he's one of the few black intellectuals and journalists at the highest levels of the American empire who has a genuine and deep love for black people. And that's not putting anybody else down, but it's very difficult to be in those spaces and not get so co-opted and so reshaped in such a way that you become accommodated to the mainstream structures and lose not just the idea of roots, but really revel in and remain immersed in a profound love of them. The love of black people is different than promoting justice. A lot of people promote justice on a superficial level. You know what I mean? But justice, you know, it's only justice soon degenerates into something less than justice. You gotta have a deeper love. And so when we introduce this brother, the world needs to know he has written a love letter to black people in his manifesto. And he's saying, I have a vision, I have an analysis, and I have a witness that I'm exemplifying in terms of the call for a power shift. And so we want him to be able to reflect on this book, but we wanna thank him so very, very much for that. And I wanna start this way, brother, because your, your book begins with a moment of stillness. And by stillness, I'm talking about Frederick Edward Blow, your precious mm. brother who yeah. died last year. Tremendous style, dignity, honor. And the last book in your text is Move. You go from stillness to motion to movement. Tell us what you have in mind in this powerful text that you've written as what I'm calling a love letter to Black folk. It's a rather simple theory, which is that at the end of the Civil War, three Southern states were majority Black, another three were within four percentage points of being majority Black. The only reason that we Black people were not head of power in those states is because they were terrorized out of them. If the Great Migration had not happened, and I understand why it did, but if it had not happened, but the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act had happened, Black people would control up to 14 Senate seats. Black people would control possibly as uh, more electoral college votes than New York State and California combined. That you, if Black people voted over that period the same way that they vote today, you would not have had a Republican president for the last 50 years. The Supreme Court would look completely different than it does today. I am saying to Black people that Half of the power in America is reserved for the states, and that's how the framers designed it. The Constitution specifically says any power that we are not specifically here saying belongs to the federal government is reserved for the states. Most of what Black people have marched about, complained about, pleaded about are largely state issues. 
mass incarceration is a largely a state issue. Most prisoners are not federal prisoners. Criminal justice is largely a state issue. Educational policy, health policy, largely state issues. If you want to truly feel what power feels like in America, you have to increase your power on a state level, meaning return to the places where you were the majority or near majorities before the Great Migration. You're making a very um, provocative, I think, to many argument that um, we African-Americans would be able to uh, be not only majorities, but that in being majorities, um, we would be able to control a whole range of, of state-based policies and practices, many of which African-Americans have been complaining about. So tell me and, and, and our listeners why you believe that being a majority would, would put us in political power, right? Because you could make the argument that we were a majority in those states before, right? So walk us through how you think that would translate, because I think it's an important part of what you're, what you're arguing. You could take Mississippi, for instance. Mississippi gave us our first two Black senators. At that point, senators were not popularly elected. They were elected by state legislatures. But because Black people were the majority of the uh, voting population in Mississippi, Black men, that women couldn't vote at the time, they had enough power, they had enough delegates, they had enough power to go to the party establishment and say, we need one of these senators that we're going to appoint to be Black. And that's what they did. Now they gave him the senator who had the shortest period, uh, time left on his on his tenure <laughs> at that point. But they gave him. But that's but that's what power looked like. Right. right. We don't have that. I mean, Warnock here in Georgia is a fascinating example to me because it is the first time in American history that a senator, a black senator, has been popularly elected, and the majority of the electorate that put him into office of his base was black. First time ever. Now, right. in theory, it doesn't matter, it shouldn't matter who is part of that coalition. But in practice, people are most beholden to the people who bring them into office. Mm -hmm. And so they can't upset that block of voters. This is the first time the majority of them were Black. Those are the ones you can't upset. It makes a huge difference. And the thing that's important to understand about increasing your share or even going over into majority is that even when uh, people do things like gerrymandering and try to limit the power of your vote, doesn't work on statewide races. Doesn't work on the governor's race. You can't gerrymander the, the governor's race. That's a statewide election. Mm -hmm. You can't gerrymander your senator's race. That's a statewide election. You might be able to, to make some headway on the state representatives, mm -hmm. but not the Senate. Judges that are elected on a statewide basis, you can't gerrymander that. So that's what power looks like. And it's important to remember that it may not take a majority for you to get your political goals met. Now, Georgia, last time Georgia was blue was 1992. Black people were only 25% of the population of Georgia in 1992. This year, they are 33% of the population of Georgia. The Black population of Georgia doubled between 1990 and 2000, uh, 2020. But that was only 1.7 million people, right? You may not even need to, to get to 51%. Just with enough new young legs and young energy and young thinking can change the dynamic. This was 
first tried most, uh, successfully in Vermont. Early 1970s, two Yale uh, law students wrote a paper in the Yale Law Review called Jamestown 70, I think it is. And they argued for this thing, called, which they call radical federalism. All you young white hippies protesting against Vietnam War, that's not going to get it. You're not going to be able to have a revolution. You're not going to be able to overthrow things. Doing things by force is not going to work. They have the military. But what you can do is take over a state. The smallest one is Vermont. Doesn't take that many people. Go. Writing for Playboy picks up on this and writes a whole article saying, take over Vermont. Young white people, by the tens of thousands, pick up their things and move to Vermont. They sleep in the fields and communes and all sorts of things. Do they outnumber the people who exist already there? They do not. But just that infusion of energy and thought and revolutionary thinking changes Vermont from one of the most conservative states in the union to now one of the most liberal states in America. In 2008, Barack Obama gets his largest share of the white vote in Vermont. I like the, the idea of thinking about it as clean majority. May not even take that much. And of course, and here come Bernie Sanders as well in terms of being a product of that very movement that you're talking about. But let me just ask you a question, brother. I've, I've been blessed to have uh, a brilliant student from Mississippi. He's a Black Rose Scholar. His name is Daryl Daryl Brown. We call him Brother Phil because he's related to Curtis Mayfield. He's third cousin of a genius from Chicago named Curtis Mayfield. But he's writing a dissertation on a call for Black people to return to the South. Oh, I said, very interesting. Wow. <laughs> on the same wavelength. This is very interesting. Now he focuses on Mississippi. Yeah. So he's talking about Sister Ward and Brother Lamont and of course, Brother Banner, David Banner, Mississippi, 2003. When he tells a story though, that is very interesting. He talks about Russell Long being on the floor of the Senate 1964, promoting his uh, Black Relocation Commission which was a call to push black people out of the South because as long as black people remain in the South, white power could never reign. He had introduced the bill in 49, it came back in 54, then he came in 64 real strong. Then the Klan and the others had to reverse freedom rise. Let's get black people out of the South. They got freedom rise going in with the courageous progressives, but let's push them out of the South. So now I said, well, so now here comes Brother Charles Blow out of a sense of desperation because you're desperate like all of us, given this suffering that's out here, yes. given this social misery, we got to find a way out. Right? Mm -hmm. And so lo and behold, you get now a cacophony of voices. So you take the midnight train to Georgia. Okay, you going on to Atlanta, <laughs> some going to Mississippi, others going to Louisiana, and you're going back and forth to Louisiana because you got your love folk there, right? Yes, yes, but yes. let me ask you this then, that, that, that what constitutes for you the major impediment in the black context? Because your call is not just for political power. You're talking about spiritual power. Yes. You're talking about black honor, black dignity, black self-respect, black self-confidence. What constitutes a major impediment within the black context for this? There are several. One is there's a whole black power structure uh, that has been built up in what I call destination cities, the cities to which black right. people migrated during the Great Migration that depends on having large groups of Black people in those cities, even if their power is diminished. Can you go whisper to the Black people and get them to support 
Councilman so and so? Can you go whisper to the black people right. Right. and get them right. to this the mayor candidate so and so? So there's a whole infrastructure that will be definitely object to this idea because their power is is contingent on their proximity to white power. In addition to that, there are black people who have bought into the jingoism, the civic jingoism around sports teams. And I'm known for, you know, this, my city is known for this and my city is known for that. Leaving aside the fact that those same cities have relegated you to certain parts of those cities that have essentially become permanent refugee camps since the Great Migration. Leaving aside the fact that you that there's whole areas in those cities where concentrated poverty ha has bloomed in a way that it has not bloomed other, other places in the country. Leaving aside the fact that most of the most high profile cases, Black Lives Matter cases have actually happened in those cities, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so we brainwash ourselves and say, oh, my city's better than you, my city's better than you. And half the places we talk about we've never been into, mm -hmm. half the places we're not welcome to, half the places there's no black person on the board of that museum or that civic institution or, or that baseball team or that football team or that basketball team. Mm -hmm. We have to reassess what power looks like. And I think it is heartbreaking to say this, but I believe absolutely true that because we have been starved of real power for so long, we don't even know what it feels like. Mm. We don't, we, we've never had the governor in a majority black state responsive to black people. We've had a black governor. We've had, Reconstruction, we had one in Louisiana, but, but responsive to blackness, not because white people said, okay, we're gonna give this a shot this time. And then quickly, rebel against it, but mm. because we decided that this was the person who was, we wanted. What does that power look like? What does it look like when you actually address issues of black oppression? The only reason that there is oppression in America is because America says we want it. That, mm. This idea of like, <laughs> we need to have the hard conversation about race is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard because it's not actually a hard <laughs> conversation at all. Mm. <laughs> It is as simple as human beings are human being, regardless of what their complexion or whatever their facial features or hair textures are, they're human beings and all of them should be treated equally. And we should all set about to do that and erase all the things that create inequities or hierarchies among those human beings. It's not that hard of a conversation. We make it hard because we wanna make people feel less uncomfortable right. with the fact that they are participating in the oppression. Mm -hmm. So, so I, I mean, I read this as a strong critique of the Black leadership class and even a kind of indictment of the decadent elements of the Black bourgeoisie. If we put Black working people and poor people at the center of our vision, the way Martin King did or the way Malcolm did or Fannie Lou Hamer, and, and of course Fannie was the main one who's saying, I ain't leaving Mississippi. I'm staying in Roosevelt, right? How come y'all y'all go to Chicago? What's gonna happen in Chicago? Okay, you're gonna recreate the city and got urban blues and so mm -hmm. forth. You're gonna have a magnificent black mayor, but the, the suffering's still gonna be there. We have numbers and we got a spirituality if we so choose. Mm -hmm. So that 
when you talk about the impediments, I mean, you've got a black leadership class, and, and I'm not talking about all the black middle class, but just the decadent, decadent elements of it. You know what I mean? The ones that just worshiping the golden calf, you know, mm -hmm. status, wealth, power, and so forth and so on, you see. And so you're calling for a spiritual and a moral awakening as part of this movement. I mean, you think of uh, Ferris, Jasmine Griffin's magnificent book, Who Set You Flowing? The Afro-American Migration Narrative, where migration and movement is the major theme of Black people, because we're trying to get out, but we're carrying it with us in such a way that we also have responsibilities to the least of these. I think part of the challenge is going to be, even in Atlanta, I mean, when the Black middle class took over in Atlanta, they didn't make Black poor people center. They broke the sanitation workers' strike that the King himself had died for in Atlanta, right? How do you keep the Black middle class accountable, even given your visionary and courageous call of going back, returning to the source, as it were, to invoke Cabral? Well, I don't think the Black middle class is as much a problem as the Black aristocracy. Oh, now what's the difference? As amazing as, as Du Bois, du Bois was and all the amazing writing and things he produced, this talented tenth thing is premised on a lie that the aristocracy will lift you. Mm. That's not the way mm. aristocracies work. The mm -hmm. aristocracy is, is only interested in the preservation of the aristocracy, whether it's black, white, brown, blue, whatever. Right. And, right. So what, and what ends up happening with the black aristocracy is that the moment you become the exceptional Negro, you are absorbed into white culture and you become fat on the privileges of luxuries and disconnected from the struggle of everyday black people. The people who would otherwise be our generals are eating cake in parlors on Fifth Avenue because they are comfortable and their and their comfort is dependent on that proximity to white power and white wealth and white credentialing. Right, so we don't have generals. You know, our generals did come out of the trenches, and then the aristocracy treats them as if they don't belong at the front of the line. They don't belong in front of the troops. I am the example of what success looks like. I am the aspirational figure. No, you're not. You are the figure who have forgotten about us. When I decided to move from New York to Atlanta. It was a shock to the, that group of people, that group of friends. How could you? So hard to make it in New York. You made it. You are part of New York City high society. Mm -hmm. how, how could you be welcomed into white high society and spurn it easily? Because that has nothing to do with the helping of my people. That, that has to do with my personal luxuries. Easily. Uh, that bearing that kind of witness can cut against the grain in a mighty way though, brother. In a mighty, mighty way. Now we notice you do invoke our dear brother, my very dear brother, Andre Willis, who, uh, as you know, was married to our dear sister, Trisha. I don't think he knows that. <laughs> oh, oh, you didn't know that? No, no, he didn't know. Oh, Lord. <laughs> yes, Lord. Yeah, when Charles to came win. to Brown, Andre couldn't come to the dinner. Because you remember, Charles, we was met it? at Brown a couple of yes, years yes, ago. Yes. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, no, I don't I, think he knows. It's just by coincidence you're quoting my husband, which, is, you know, only helped my, my value. You know. <laughs> he's written such powerful things on hope and democracy and post-democracy and so forth. But, uh, uh, but this issue, you know, of how do you bear witness as someone who is a candidate to be the darling for a white neoliberal establishment and you refuse to be that darling. See, Baldwin refused to do it, as we know. Gwendolyn Brooks refused to do it. 
Ishmael Reed refused to do it. Baraka, Leroy Jones, refused to do it. Now you get Charles Blow saying, well, I know what it's like to sip tea with y'all, but I've got something deeper going on morally and spiritually, and I want to be able to be part of a black power movement. I mean, even echoes of Stokely in, in, in that way, you see. I'm just wondering, you know, how you gonna negotiate and navigate that, that, that space though, brother? It's not a conflict within me. Mm. It seems only natural to me. I don't believe that race is a real thing. I mean, we, we invented that as human beings. Uh, we just look differently and whatever, but biologically, uh, anthropologists tell us this, this thing that you are calling race doesn't exist that way. But racism is absolutely a real thing with a structure and a history and a legacy. Mm -hmm. And if I am to be my best human being, it is my job, my doodle, my moral responsibility to fight this thing that causes inequality for some people and benefits others unfairly, not because of merit. So, so it's not yeah. a conflict for me. Right, it's not a conflict, no, I I'd say. Oh, I, it's a so, conflict for a whole lot of other folk, though. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, for it's, a whole lot of other folk. Ooh, well, they I get mean, that you, memo. They get that yeah. memo say, oh, Lord, have mercy. <laughs> oh, I didn't do much. But it goes right ahead, though, says Trisha. I'm no, sorry. no, that's important. I'm no, sorry. I think that's important. And the question of the consequences of those choices are always complicated because what you what you don't see is what you don't see, right? So that's why it's a powerful decision. It's one thing to know what you're giving up. It's another thing to not have any idea really what, what that would entail. So let me ask you about this distinction between aristocracy and middle class, because I think it's important. I, and I completely agree with your identification of this elite group of black people, right? Which is well more elite than a middle class black person could be. And there's a function to that aristocracy that I think you described well. But I, I'm not sure that means the black middle class is not also potentially a force and factor as well, however distinct it may be also from an aristocracy. So do you, I mean, in other words, how would you respond to concerns that the process of, you know, remigration and black majority life would be subjected to the kinds of internalized value structures around success, around elitism, around prosperity that, are, that may not be at the level of the aristocracy, right, as, as this uber elite, but that it's nonetheless part of, you know, even the tensions between HBCUs and everyday people, right, leaders of, of schools and churches and places that are already predominantly, if not entirely Black that they may also have the same kinds of value systems. They just don't have nearly as much power to exercise it, someone could argue. How would you avoid that problem, you know, as, as we imagine this manifesto of a profound return? Number one, the distinction is always power. This doesn't absolve the middle class of, of any responsibility, but the, the lion's share of the power is always with the aristocracy, mm -hmm. right? And that is the difference. But to your other point, though, nothing, including this book, could ever honestly promise you a utopia. We are all we are still going to be talking about societies. Societies are made up of human beings. Human beings will have its scoundrels and it will have its geniuses. It will have its do-goods and it will have its ne'er-do-wells. Mm -hmm. That's human society. What I'm saying is, can we please have a human society that is not dictated by an ethos of white supremacy. 
let me have my other human problems like everybody else. Yeah, just have your regular, that other your, your regular scoundrels. Yes, I just don't want this other one. Yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, I no, think that's, that, that's an amazing claim, really, because, you know, it's almost impossible to imagine the thing you're asking for. I mean, I'll be really honest. That's why I think it's such a fascinating idea, because you're not saying uh, that all these other human foibles are going to go away. You're saying that the profound impact of, of a kind of ethos of white supremacy is so embedded in everything and everywhere and every place that we, we really have to kind of try to push it out right, to, to create a different point of reference. And I mean, I guess, you know, it's one of those things, I guess I wouldn't be in the first train car. I'd be like, well, okay, <laughs> y'all call me when it looks like we done reduce some of this white supremacy because I don't feel like moving because I'm from New York. <laughs> but, but you know, the, the interesting thing that you, you, is it, it's interesting you say that because I think a lot of people wrongly believe that places like New York don't have the same oh they do level of bias that you would encounter so absolutely i encountered this argument a lot when i was writing the book people wrongly assume that their northern place is qualitatively better and different yes. in terms of racial bias than the southern place that they might choose right and so i i because of that i went out of my way to to make sure that I gave context for that. So I asked the people at, at the Project Perception Institute. Uh -huh. Yes, Project Implicit Bias. They tested 100,000 people. I said, okay, give me, do this analysis for me. Give me region of the country, anti-black, pro-white bias by race. There was no difference in the anti-black, pro-white bias of white people in the South and those in the North and the Midwest. No. Yeah. No. Look, let me just let me just put a footnote by my being a New Yorker. I, <laughs> I did not mean to suggest that we were as a place any less filled with the same kinds of biases. I'm, I'm from the Bronx and, you know, trust me, it's not an aristocratic, you know, upbringing. But you're 100 percent. What I was really trying to get at, once you have generations of people who are removed from the South or who never lived there, who don't have recent relatives who are from yes. there, what does that return mean? How do we claim that space? You put it in the terms of, you know, I love this sports team. I'm from this city. I rep this. I rep the so-and-so area code, so on and so forth. But there is an attachment, right, to place. Just well, as I, you're, two, right, two so talk about on, that. Two things on that. Number one, do you know what it feels like to live in a Black space governed by Blackness? There are 1,200 majority Black towns and cities in America and growing. 90% of them are in the South. Yeah, a thousand you said, yeah. A yep. quarter yeah. of all black people now live under municipal black leadership and 90% of them are in the South. You have, if you've never experienced that, you have no reference point to know how great that feels to not, to know that the police department is not hunting you. Mm -hmm. That the administration is not aimed against you because of your race. The second thing I would say on that is Black people have been in America for 400 years. The entire 400 years, the majority of Black people have been in the South. You and your family's attachment to whatever city that you're in in the North may go back 90 years or 100 years if they were part of the first wave of the Great Migration. Very likely it is shorter than that. 
our attachment in relationship to the South is 400 years old. Dr. West is talking about the spiritual connection. There is something spiritual about me walking through that graveyard and looking at my great grandfather's headstone. Mm -hmm. There is something about walking underneath those trees and knowing that that ground is fertilized with black blood and black sweat. And that one of these trees might have heard the snap of a neck uh, and the wiggling of a body. There is something spiritual about knowing that, that out of this came black spirituality and black music and black culture. And that all the amazing culture that we created in the destination cities was literally the culture that black people had created and our youngest, coolest southerners took it to New York and Chicago and Detroit. There is something spiritual about it, roughly speaking. There are two black Americas, the children of the great migration and the children of the one who stayed. You know, I've spent half my life in the South and half of it out of the South. And it gave me a appreciation that there are cultural differences between these two groups of people that I believe very strongly that a reunification, a reunion of them would be beneficial to both. That dynamism of the North, that intellectual firepower and pursuit, that patience and prodding and legacy and connection to earth in the South, a connection to legacy. Mm -hmm. Wisdom, and, and, a certain and, and kind a of rich, wisdom. Rich history. I mean, when I was reading your last chapter on reunion, I, I put on the OJ's family reunion, the gamble. <laughs> and then I put on little Jill Scott family reunion with the background yes. of the escorts, the brother who sang that song in jail with, uh, with Sister Sylvia Robinson. And that's part of that spiritual, cultural, artistic dimension that's so important because in the American empire these days, the spiritual decay is so deep, the moral decrepitude cuts so, so deep that if black folk don't get a sense of morality and spirituality and a sense of self-love and self-respect, it doesn't make any difference how much money the Negroes make because they already joyless. They too spiritless anyway. They walk around in their mansions and they trophy spouses and everything else. They still empty. And that's just a fundamental fact of any bourgeois life, but especially for black people who have been able to survive based on a certain connection to a spirituality and a culture and so forth. So that, you know, the South never leaves us. The very way in which we talk, the very way in which we gesture, yes. you know, that, that's the blows. <laughs> the West, that shallow Baptist church, you know, people yeah. that you, they see Frederick Douglass, but he also looked like he's head of the deacon board. You know what I mean? Yes. It's, 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 that's part of the culture. Now, 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 in a way, we're talking more about Negroes or ex-Negroes than we are our precious Black folk who have come from Ethiopia and other places. Yes. yes. And there, you know, that's that's going to be a question of how you deal with that. You know, the debates with Sister Yvette and Brother Tone of Ados. How do you talk about this in such a way you hold on to the specificity, but still have solidarity with our African and Caribbean brothers and sisters? But there is still something different about Mississippi Negroes. Yes. As opposed to Jamaican black folk. Both of them beautifully black, both of them rich, been enslaved. One of them been Jim Crow, the other one Jim Crow. 
So the, how do you deal with that issue within the black continent? One of the things that was interesting to me was, you know, we have a rising number of people coming to America from Africa. The number one region of the country they're choosing to settle is the South. There are now as many Black people living under Black control as some African countries. Th that region, there's something that feels rooted and natural about us being in that space. And I think both for economic reasons, the other thing that a big spur is economics, by the way. Black people lived in the South for 50 years after the Civil War was over, even as terror was rising, even as lynchings mm -hmm. were rising, they stayed mm -hmm. in the South. It was the economic push. It was the collapse of the cotton industry because of the boll weevil uh, infestation. And, and at the same time, the pull of Northern industry as young white boys had gone off to war, that was an extra push they needed. Mm -hmm. We may be getting that extra push now back to the South with this pandemic. The unemployment rate in many of our northern and western cities is through the roof. You know, at the at the second quarter of last year, when everything shut down, the unemployment rate in Chicago was three times the rate in, in Atlanta. That kind of collapse will make you think about everything differently. Yeah, that's the truth. That's the truth. The migration was a push-pull proposition. Something was in your back pushing you out, but there was also something drawing you. I think that the same thing can ha is happening now or can happen now. There is the push of militarized policing in, in the North, but also an economic collapse because of the pandemic. And, the, and there is the pull of the South, which is all these places that are already run by Black people. Black middle class is thriving. If you look at Forbes as a list of where the Black middle class is thriving, like something like half of those cities were in the South. When you look at the list of where Black businesses are thriving. Southeast is the primary place. You look at where uh, median household income has risen. South, that doesn't mean they're not poor cities, places that reason in the South. It just says that there are cities in the South where the Black middle class can do incredibly well and you can be comfortable. No, you're touching on something that's very, very significant, though. I mean, it reminds me of Henry Highland Garnett. You remember he's standing there with one leg in the 1840s in Philadelphia, and he says, never confuse the situation of better Black people with the Israelites of the Old Testament. For us, Pharaoh is on both sides of the bloody red seas. There's a sense in which anywhere we go, we got new Pharaohs. Some of them Black, but most of them not. But some of them are Black. And I, and I, I appreciated your uh, loving critique of Brother Obama. I just want to throw that out for people. We won't go into all of the detail. But that was a loving critique there. And that's very important. That last moment when you all, you arrived with him on the plane, you see all the Black folk there in, in the march and so forth. You know, that's powerful stuff that hits deep. But our critiques have to be of accountability of Black leaders, no matter what. And you make that point as well. But I just, you know, the, the, the desperation tied to the love that's in your text, though, man. How do we find a way out of this suffering in this country? How long must Black people have to come to terms with this white supremacist bombardment on different levels? And you provide an answer to it, man. And you provide an example to it, a witness to it. It's, uh, we got a long way to go. I mean, I'm thinking of Andre 3000. Remember he got the award in 1995, they booed him. You remember that says Trisha too? Mm -hmm. They booed a genius like Andre 3000 cause he's from the South. He yeah, said, well, just yeah. wait, the Goody Mob is coming. Killer mm -hmm. Mike is coming. 
You know what I mean? Earth Gang is coming. We got something for y'all down here in the South. And now it's a different situation. That's what, 16 years ago. Mm-hmm. Now right. it's a very different situation. And so uh, I, I think this manifesto, it's going to generate some serious, substantive discussion that takes us outside of ourselves and focuses on the suffering of Black people. Mm. And others too, because see, when Black politicians move in with progressive legislation, all citizens benefit. Right. That's that's the legacy of Martin King. That's the legacy of the best of the shallow Baptist churches in the, in, in the country. All benefit, but it begins on the chocolate side of town, unequivocally based on not a hatred of anybody else, but a love of the people who are suffering. Is that a fair characterization, my brother? Absolutely, absolutely. So Charles, tell us, you know, one of the things that basically what Cornell was just saying reminded me of an experience I had while I was reading, which was that I was filling in a lot of the the texture of the the kinds of invisible pressures of white supremacy, right? And you alluded to when you said, you know, have you ever, or how many people, how many African-American civics had this experience where you're not under the, you know, you can't assume that you're being hunted and so on and so forth quantify a little bit more for our listeners and and viewers just more of the texture of what you imagine would be missing because i think what happens is that frankly and i'm just going to speak from an imaginary group of people inside the black community which may not exist but that many people think that that can't be separated away from a black experience right that what is that that what is that, that that a white supremacist infrastructure embeddedness self-consciousness awareness perception treatment right is embedded in such a fundamental way that there's really nowhere to get out of it you know whether whether it's black dominated or not right well what would you say to that my whole life up until the last neighborhood i lived in in new york was majority black right so i went i lived in a majority black town went to a majority black high school went to a majority white black college with my First job was in Shreveport. I was born in Shreveport, majority black. Uh, where I went to the dentist, that city was majority black. When I moved to Detroit, majority black. When I moved to New York, I didn't go to a new, majority black city. I moved to a majority black neighborhood. That was Prospect Heights at the time. That, show, that was Shirley Chisholm's old district. Mm-hmm. It is a different feeling. The small town I grew up, I mean, that, we don't, we're going to have one cop. But your <laughs> brother couldn't hunt you. You, knew where he lived. <laughs> you had you know, one cop. Like, got one cop. Uh, he gets the flu. He go. He go get the flu, and so everybody's on their own, right? <laughs> <laughs> and, then when, and then when he was replaced, it was my cousin by marriage who was the cop. So I, I, I just and we went with this college it was only twenty minutes away at Grambling State University. The, all the police officers were black, and either they knew me, they knew my family. But the, the feeling, you just never, if you were doing something wrong, they say, stop that. <laughs> and that's how it was dealt with. It, right. it wasn't, you, you never felt that, that, that the structure, the power structure gonna was chew you up. against you. It was never there to harm you. Uh, it was not there to milk money out of your flesh, which is what a lot of the police departments do now for cities that... that where, where the politicians are too cowardly to either raise the taxes or cut services. So they basically tell them, go out and, and make more contacts, which means write more tickets and they'll raise the fines on those tickets and they'll make the money out of your flesh. Yep. I never experienced what that felt like until I moved to the North. I still tense up over, and I'm in New York and, and they're police because in my mind, they are looking for a reason. 
Yeah. And the so, first yeah. few months I was here in Atlanta, I was, there was right outside my building, uh, they were, it was a building, construction of a building across the street and the police officers had blocked off the street for construction. And I'm walking to do something, maybe to the grocery store and the guy, I hear somebody say, Charles, Charles, blow. And I realized it's coming from the police car. And here I am like, oh my God. And I woke up and he says, his plug, I said, brother, I just want to thank you for all that you do. And, and I swear to God, it took me aback. Yeah. Because that experience of them not being out to do something, to find a reason, mm. Mm. is what I remember it being like. And I was back in that space. Yeah. Mm. So what's gonna be, Charles, what's good? You mentioned that we had, you know, the Northern industry, right? When white soldiers went off to war to be the sort of beacon. What's gonna be the beacon? Is it gonna be culture? Is it gonna be, you know, black arts and social life? Or is it gonna be industry? And, you know, how do you imagine that we might facilitate this return? Well, number one, I think you, you, the, the economic reasons are real and you have to make people aware that it's easy to start business here. And a lot of people have, and that the center of new black businesses are here in the South among black people. Mm -hmm. uh, you have to let them know that black middle class is actually thriving in many of these Southern black cities, that there's a tech center here in, in, in some of the black cities, particularly on the Eastern coast, those cities, that it is not desolate and dust and backwoods, that there are cities where people are doing incredibly well and it is not extraordinary, it is mm -hmm. normal. But in addition to that, reminding people that we have black cultural institutions. They are <laughs> churches, they are black colleges, these places that have been around before there was a such thing as a migration. You live in a space where the, all of the cultural institutions are revolve around whiteness. Your museums and your ballets and your orchestras are all founded by white people, incorporate only white people, most of the, the structures of the leadership or majority predominantly white. And that's fine. But if it doesn't include you, if your cultural institutions are not part of the structure and the fabric of the life of that place, are you truly nurtured? Are you truly nurtured? Which is so different from when I go to New Orleans and the entire structure of the city is about black culture. The food is black people's food. The institutions are infused with blackness, if not black themselves. There's no part of that city that I feel is off limits to me. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter how much money you do. It's none of it is off limits to you. You know, our dear brother, Jonathan Walton, who was the uh, professor here at Harvard for many, many years, though he's a brilliant brother. He's a wonderful brother. He went down to Wake Forest. He's now Dean at the Divinity School of Wake Forest in North Carolina, John Coltrane, the Theolonius Monk country. And uh, he said, the, the qualitative sense of just being and presence in North Carolina versus Cambridge. Now, Cambridge, you got a low bar. You know what I mean? Ain't a whole <laughs> Let's just be honest. Yeah, yeah that, that, that's a real low bar. I mean, I'm glad somebody's praying for me up here. But, the, but we're praying the, for you. We're praying. Yeah, for you. Absolutely. Those prayers kicking in. But the, <laughs> but the whole sense of, being in that context. Now, of course, he's also a leader because he's a, he's a major intellectual, you know what I mean? So he's like yourself. You see, he's part of the intellectual class shaping ideas, discourse, conversation, and dialogue, and so on. 
but it's, it's really a collaboration and, and validation of what you're talking about, just talking on the phone with him. And I'm sure there's many other instances. Do you find that there's a whole group of you all down there that have left New York, Chicago, Detroit, Cleveland? I will condition this on the fact that there is a pandemic. <laughs> oh, oh, no, <laughs> I got to meet everybody. That's, but that's, but that's, there are a lot of people, including people that I knew from New York who I didn't even know were here, who mm -hmm. I've just run into since I've been here. So, there, so yes, there are a lot of expatriates from New York and other places in, mm. in Atlanta. In fact, I went to expatriates like they go from another country. Like, <laughs> when, when I went to get my driver's license because I had moved, I was just paying attention to what other people said. You know, it's a line at the DMV no matter where right, you are. Right. Okay, right. uh, <laughs> Black folk didn't uh, fix that, huh? But also very nice. All these black women were just like super like that. It's just one of those things you just notice that mm -hmm. they're dealing with all these black people and they're just treating all the older people like family. And right. they ask people to get up for the old older women to sit down. Like it's just it's a different it's a different sense. thing. It's a different thing. Right. But but uh I noticed like a lot of the people live were like, yes, I just moved to Atlanta. I like to get it. So a lot of people were doing exactly what I was doing. They had Ooh. just moved to Atlanta. Mm. Interesting. And they were getting their IDs. Interesting. Yeah. You know, I, you mentioned that young people had begun moving f a few years ago. And one of the things that I've been reading about has been the source of the success in the uh, election regarding Georgia becoming, you know, Democrat was you know strategies particularly of young black and women uh, activists for the past 20 years who've been making yes. claims about how that political process ought to be uh, undertaken and what kinds of strategies should be deployed and the democratic party ignored them quite consistently until recently have you been tapping into this kind of of transition because you know if you're talking about small towns that are already all black okay but what about the political transitions of power like georgia have you been aware of sort of the impact of this migration on that political transformation or or is it not connected no it's completely connected one leg of that movement was the organizing the other leg was there were more bodies to organize right Mm. Yeah. Uh, so both things happened at the same time, and that is what made the difference in the change. But I do want to make one clarification. I do not now nor ever do I want to be assumed that when I say Black power, I mean Democratic power. Right. Mm -hmm. I say Black power in terms of self-determination of how you want to express that power. Mm -hmm. Now, my own personal values are liberal values. I hope that with more prosperity will come, in most cases, it becomes more liberal, becomes, in some cases, it becomes less religious, whatever. I hope that that is a transformation, but I won't impose that. I want Black people to feel what it feels like to be courted, genuinely. Because right now, you can't deliver a state until Georgia. Black people, this is the first time and I don't know the data in Reconstruction because they don't have it. First time in recorded history where you can look at exit polls and see the results of how people voted, that Black people were the majority of the coalition that delivered a state, ever. 
That's what power looks like. That's when you start getting courted. If you only exist around the edges when white people can't make up their minds, when they split their vote 40, 60, and then you make the difference, you the gravy, they only have to excite you. They don't have to appease you. They've got to get you to the poll, then they can they ignore you after that. To the polls. And as soon as the election is over, they forget you. Yes. Hmm. Oh, I, and we thank God for Sister Stacy yeah. and yeah. the others down in, in Georgia playing that important role. But the challenge, though, is always going to be how do you how do you keep track of the least of these? So that all the talk about any power, black power, whatever. You see, if you're not talking about the black poor, you're not talking about the black orphans and widows and the prisoners and so forth. And we back to Shiloh again, that in the end, it's just another trap. Because it looked like everywhere we go is a trap. Yeah, we go to the north. Well, I, no, I, I, I believe that white supremacy poses such a threat to prosperity that it pushes everybody down. That I'm not saying that you will ever be able to elevate everybody out of poverty. I'm not saying that there won't be people living in poor living conditions. I'm saying that white supremacy chose you as a target of its oppression, which adds another push, a hand pushing down on your head. And we have to get rid of that and see how much we rise. And see how much we can And then rise. we can figure out how to raise more people. But the, white, the, white, the, the hand of white supremacy is heavy. Oh, you ain't lying. If, if you if you want listen, and 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 part of the this misery and uh, sometimes dysfunction that happens in societies and happens sometimes in black society, it's just because these are human beings who are being treated horribly, who live in horrible living conditions, forced to do so. Absolutely. And human beings respond in a particular way. When you had tenements in New York City, almost no black people lived down there. It was one of the most horrible crime-ridden places in America. Because if you put people in horrible living conditions with no hope, they will respond in a particular way, white, black, brown, whatever. It's a human thing, human it's thing. It's a human thing. So when right. I see people say, oh, look, the black people in Chicago and black people here and black people here doing that. I'm like, do you remember New York when you did this to white people? This is how human beings behave when they are oppressed. That's real. But there though, brother, it wasn't just white supremacy, it was a combination of white supremacy and predatory capitalism. Yes, yes, yes. And the patriarchy, they, they all go hand Did in the hand. Other in hand, hand in hand. But that doesn't mean we don't keep a focus on the, the role that white supremacy is playing, the driving that it's doing, the targeting that it's doing. But in predatory the, capitalism has always used white supremacy as one of its tools though. That's right. That's right, right. But I think the concern is, you know, how do we keep our eye on what you're keeping our eye on, right, which is the specific way that white supremacy is working and the excessive heaviness of that. But also know that, you know, the system that is beneath that or that that is primarily being uh, reinforced by that hand is one that could easily become something that black people would continue to be invested in, which is not all that different from an aristocratic investment, right? One, one could find oneself being, uh, you know, comfortable with a predatory capitalism as long as there's no racism involved, you know? And then the predatoriness would be evenly distributed by race and gender. And I'd be like, wait, hold on, time out. <laughs> you know, we just, we got a little bit of one devil we know off our back, but we added, a, you know, the full, the full Monty of another one. 
So I think part of the question is, you know, and that's where the spiritual dimension, I think, comes back in, right, which is when you know this legacy and the experience of Black people and you honor it and you attend to it and you, you respect it, then you hopefully, not Democrat, Republican, skip that, but you hopefully know that human suffering is, is, is something that we want to slow down and end. We want to, right, and, and that is, isn't going to be just white supremacy, right? That's going to be human suffering in, in a broad way. So I think that's what, what we were just tussling with there. Yeah, I, listen, I, but, I, but, I, but I don't think you don't get rid of white supremacy if you have the opportunity to do it. Oh no! I'm no. Uh, I, I'm, and, I'm thinking and, about and I, the South right now, Charles. Yeah, you got. Yeah, <laughs> you got I, I, and, and, and I look at a place like Atlanta. Atlanta yeah. became majority black in 1970. 1972, Mayor Jackson becomes the first black mayor, and they have had a black mayor ever since. Right. And they have grown a black middle class. They have created the largest body of black legislators uh, in the country. Most six of them coming from New York, uh, Atlanta proper. Mm -hmm. It changes the dynamic. It doesn't mean that they got rid of all the all poverty. Poverty, in Indiana, right? No, right. Right. It right. means that when you this is what it looks like when you when you take a lot of the white supremacy off the on a municipal off the table off the table. Off the table. Right. It takes it off the table, and then you start to say, "Oh, okay." Now there's some other stuff that the state needs to do that we still have a a, a governor in there who won't respond, mm -hmm. but. Municipally, there's a lot that it was was able to be accomplished. Right. Now the next level is to take that to the state right. level. Right. And now let's see how much more of that white supremacy we can remove. And right. you keep moving up that ladder. And then once you see what the baseline is, we don't know what the baseline is for black autonomy and black power and black prosperity, because we have never had it in the absence of white supremacy. Don't even know what it looks like. Yeah, we can speculate that you know this is going to happen. That's going to. We have no clue. We've never been there, and it's worth not knowing and still trying to find out compared to what we know the other alternative is. Yes. That's that's that we know. That's the devil. Then which one's the devil we know? <laughs> <laughs> Racism is the devil you know. You got a beautiful moment though on page one eighty seven when you talk about this vision of just no oppression black folk being able to flower and flourish with no impediments at all you know i've been blessed to teach in prisons for over 40 years and one of the great anthems of the brothers we always play the song is uh, zoom by the commodores mm. see that's the anthem you see mm -hmm. zoom i like to fly away yeah. well i like to fly away fly away this whole sense of getting some distance from all of this mess Mm -hmm. This hatred and contempt and misery and so forth. And it's a it's a flying away. It's not just flying away like we sing in church, which is going off to heaven, but it's just sense of being in a space, in time and space, where we can get some sense of what it is to be who we fundamentally are. Yes. And when we when, when we get there, we know already we human. Yes. So we're gonna have saints and gangsters, we're gonna have thugs and magnificent because that's all in us anyway. But that's what you're talking about. And brother, that's one of the reasons why, you know, we want to salute you so yeah. because you, you're a love warrior in this great tradition of black people who have been still loving black people in the face of all this hatred coming our way. And, and, yeah. and the real sense was we don't have enough of folk like you in the black elite. I'm going to come back to the elite again. Aristocracy, middle class, bourgeois, whatever you want to call them. You know what I mean? 
And of course, this is also true among the black poor, because you don't speak the truth just to power, you speak the truth to the, the powerless too, right? And, and so that whole sense of love connected to vision, analysis, intellectual engagement, smile, style, witness. They get better than that. No, no, we appreciate they get better than that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's really true. You you put something on my mind for sure. I'll tell you that. Oh, but done a deep thing. I'm yeah, I agree. You. And it, you true. you have a legacy of this very courageous exploration, really. You know, I mean, your first memoir was incredibly powerful. Yeah, that's fire, fire in the bones. I that's, mean, you working know, with Terrence, the great Terrence, yeah, amazing. Ooh, what a genius <laughs> that brother is. Good. We want to go into this. His genius right now. <laughs> Glad yeah, but eat. yeah, I was I was like, well, I don't see how he's gonna be able to, you know, unsettle me anymore or get me more emotionally engaged. And I'm like, oh, okay, now I gotta now I was like, nah. And I'm like, oh god, I really have to deal with this. <laughs> so, <laughs> so thank you for all you're doing here. This is Absolutely. really powerful. And I look forward to the conversations that are gonna come this year based on this. Oh, you I might have so. yeah, I don't know. There will be, there will be, because the pandemic has definitely forced people to reconsider what matters, where, what, what are the core Absolutely. things that really matter? And I think about all the restaurants I've done eating in, and I'm fine with my veggie burger and some greens. I'm all right with that. I'm really, I'm like, this is good. Once a week, maybe, right? I'll be like, oh, I'll be nice to go out and be, I want more human fellowship. I don't really need the restaurant. Um, and, you know, then you think about the stress of, of the kind of life that you know professional people have had to live to survive. We have wonderful and restaurants here in the south. You sure do. I know. I know. You more than wonderful. More Atlanta, Savannah. There's a lot of nice restaurants. And y'all got the lock on 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 meat on on the on the fire grilled meat fire. So yeah. So anyway, I, I just think you're right that people really are going to have to ask themselves, what do I want to go back to? And what am I not going back to? And so I think you have the right, that may be the, the new push factor as, as, you, as you put it. But it's been such a pleasure to, to talk with you and to read your work and, and to be in dialogue. And I, we're just grateful you joined us here on the tightrope and I hope you'll come back and, and we'll have a part two after we get some more people down there. <laughs> we'll, we'll hold our next tightrope in the South. <laughs> All right, thank you so much. Wow, Cornell. Wow, that that put that put something on my mind for real. Oh, I'm telling you, that was so, so rich. He's a special brother. He got special vision. Very, yeah, very yeah. I am. Um, I mean, you know, I remember back in the 70s and 80s, a lot of black folk would leave in Harlem and Brooklyn and the Bronx and talking about I'm going back down to North Carolina, you know, especially Connecticut, you know, there's a large number. Right, of people I remember from, that. Yeah, it was a big thing. And then and then it kind of died down and got quiet. Like it wasn't like it was constantly going on but it seems like it might be back you know and uh it might be a whole new a whole new context for it i think i think you're absolutely right but it's just um uh, just looking for a way out right right you know that zoom I mean? you that called zoom. it with that you called oh, it with that oh i'm telling you ronald and uh yeah i now writing that song Ooh, yeah I, i'll tell you yeah, it, you, if you if we could if we could have the physical experience of what Zoom is calling for, right? If we could live that, that's right. Um, that's right. That would be, I mean, just think how much health we'd have. Anyway, we could be here all that's day. True. Right? That's so we have true. so much health 
<laughs> you'd have health reserves instead of health health deficits, you know, but uh, wow. Well, you know, I think we got to keep this theme going because the question is, how do we how do we get to that sense? Freedom is not just about laws, right? It's about that peace inside. It's that deep breath you can take. It's it's all of that. Absolutely. Yeah. It's yeah. So true. And, and Brother Charles understands all these different dimensions of the freedom that that, right. that he writes about and that we're talking about. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's true. That's true. Well, we're so glad, you know, of course, Cornell is always um, just every I'm so lucky. That's all I got to say. I'm just super lucky to hear you all the time. I swear people would pe people might knock me knock me over to get into my seat to sit and talk with you. So I'm holding on over here. I'm holding on to the table, brother. We just have a good time every time. I'll tell you, it hasn't been a bad time yet. Um, and that we're so true. happy to have our, our community with us, our tightrope people. Thank you all for joining us. We're super grateful that you continue to join us and you check us out and you like us on YouTube, you share episodes. We, I keep track as best I can on Twitter. And it's so nice to see all the, the, the interest and curiosity as well as appreciation. Cause you know, we're, we're educators. So cha intellectual challenges are as much food as affirmation. And so don't forget to subscribe so you can, uh, you know, debate and discuss with us. And definitely, if you want more connectivity, uh, reach out to us on um, patreon.com backslash the tightrope pod. We look forward to seeing you next time on the tightrope. All right, Cornell, I'm going to see you there, All right? All right. My dear sister Tricia, stay strong now. Will do.